Lord God, you are great. And we have gathered here this morning to worship you. We thank you, Father, for the way that you call your people together to worship you, to remember the victory of Christ over our sin, to rejoice in his salvation, to spend time together building each other up and encouraging one another by singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs and making praise to you and our hearts to you. Father, we thank you that you have in your wisdom constructed all of this and for the way that we get to be part of that this morning and get to start our year out this morning with worship which I think is the way it ought to be Father thank you for calling us together this morning thank you for your word that instructs us and guards us and guides us and authorizes us thank you for your spirit who applies that word to us and works in our hearts to open our understanding and to enliven our wills to follow you. Father, we pray this morning that as we gather together around the feast of your word, as Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Father, we pray that we would live as we meditate on these words of life. Father, we ask that you would apply them to our lives, unearth areas of our life, areas of unbelief, areas of sin that need to be dealt with. And Father, give us a heart of, of that is contrite. Give us a heart that is willing to confess. Give us a heart that is willing to repent. And give us a heart that is willing to believe and to follow. We pray, Father, that as you do, that Christ would be exalted in our lives and that people around us would see the difference, that they would see the evidence of the Spirit in us and rejoice along with us in the salvation that is in Christ. Father, we want to, as we pray for ourselves this morning, we want to pray also uh, thanking you for our missionary partners that you have, you have uh, brought into our lives and given us the opportunity to be able to serve alongside, even as we pray for them and as we provide, help to provide for them. Father, we want to pray, we want to thank you this morning for Josh and Annie Moore, for their family. Uh, thank you for the good report. Uh, that we've received from them in, in this at, in this closing to uh, to last year, Father, we thank you for the time they were able to spend in the states, visiting with family and and visiting with friends uh, and and churches on the east east seaboard. Uh, Father, we want to pray for them that the seeds that were planted through Josh's uh, preaching and through his teaching and through their time uh, would just blossom and grow into a great harvest. I thank you, Father. Um, for the way that you you have used them and for the way you've delivered them safely back. Uh, and I pray, Father, that as they resume their responsibilities there, uh, that, that, that the church would grow and flourish, that many in their community would come to know Christ as their king uh, through their, their witness, and that you would continue to protect that church uh, and to, to lead and guide and direct it. Father, as we pray for the church abroad, we also want to pray for the church here locally. Uh, Father, this morning we have prayed for ourselves and for our time in worship this morning, but our hearts are heavily burdened for the loss in our own community. And so, Father, we want to pray that you would use us effectively to be um, a, a faithful embassy of your kingdom here. Uh, we thank you, Father, for our brothers and sisters who join us in that and from, from other churches, that we're not alone in this endeavor. And this morning, Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters at Plymouth Alliance Church, for their pastor, Pete Lillistolen. Pray, Father, that you would guide him and direct him, uh, that he would pastor with due affection and praise for you, that he would rely on your word, and that you would use him effectively. We pray, Father, for the saints that are there, that they would grow and flourish as your spirit works in them as well. And Father, also as you, as you command and call us to pray for those who are in authority over us, we thank you, Father, that King Jesus is the one who holds all authority in his hand, that there is not a single decision done that is beyond his grasp or his sovereignty. And Father, we rejoice as we rejoice in his kingdom, we also want to pray for our nation. And, and particularly, Father, we want to pray this morning for our governor, Tony Evers. Father, we pray that you would uh, convict him, that you would... Uh, work through him that he would defend what is right and that he would um, use the responsibilities and the leadership that you have equipped him with to serve the needs of our state i pray father that uh, even as um, his agenda is not one we agree with uh, we still father want to pray for him that you would work uh, in and through him and that christ would triumph uh, we thank you father that we can rest in you no matter what and we ask for peace, even as we, um, 
as we seek to to reach those who do not know yet not not yet know the truth and father as also as we worship you through giving this morning we pray that you would take what is given and use it in your kingdom and for the good of the glory of christ and we pray this in jesus name amen If you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. We are back in Acts. Acts chapter 10. Uh, You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 918. It's Acts chapter 10. We're going to be covering quite a chunk this morning, um, looking at verses 1 through the first part of verse 23. So Acts 10, starting in verse 1. Well, here we are at the beginning of a brand new year. Uh, To be fair, really not that much has changed in the past 11 hours or so since that happened. But there is something, I think, to the beginning of a new year that feels like a fresh start. Uh, Something new is here, something exciting. It's that feeling I think you get when you turn to that first page of a brand new book. You don't know what lies ahead. You don't know the adventures that you're about to see. uh, But you can't can't help but be excited about what's there. When it comes to a new year, I think a lot of people are excited about the prospect of a new beginning. I mean, we all know that all those lingering challenges that were there yesterday don't just go away because we unwrapped our new calendar and hung it on the wall. But that doesn't change the way that a new year sometimes feels, I think, like a blank canvas. And that, that's exciting. Maybe you've set some goals this year. Maybe you have decided you're going to do something a little different. Maybe you've decided you're going to get in shape or spend more time in prayer or reading your Bible. Maybe you're going to take on a new hobby. Or maybe you're finally going to tackle that project that was the elephant in the room last year. I think that's my challenge this year. I've got a couple of those. Whatever you've got planned for this new year, I'm really glad we get to kick this off, this new year off today, this way, together. Uh, there's really no way to begin a year than to be here, worshiping our great God and King. I think this sets a tone for the rest of the year, and I hope that will carry over. God truly is the ruler of all history. This year is another chapter in his story of redemption. So it's significant. All the twists and turns that lie ahead in 2023 are not a mystery to him. And I can assure you of this, that whatever this year holds for us, the result of it will be nothing less than the glory of Christ. So I'm excited to start this new chapter with you in this new year, in this way, by plunging back into our study of the book of Acts, picking up here in chapter 10. Now, this passage seems particularly appropriate for today because it records a whole new chapter in the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. Up until this point in the book of Acts, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection had come to the Jewish people and to the Samaritans, but it had not yet been received by the Gentiles. And all that changes here. In Acts chapter 10, the kingdom of God begins to go global. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of this passage in particular, though, I do think it would be helpful for us to have just a quick little review of what we covered last year uh, when we first started this series. Now, there are a couple key moments, a couple key themes you need to keep in mind as you study the book of Acts. The first is that the book of Acts is a historical account 
of the events that happened directly after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. We really should read the book of Acts as volume 2 of Luke's gospel because as his stated goal uh, reminds us that his goal in recording these things was to ensure that we as his readers would have an orderly account of what God has accomplished for us and certainty concerning the things that our faith rests upon. And the second thing to keep in mind is whereas Luke's gospel tells us about the establishment of God's kingdom in the work of Christ, the book of Acts really stands out in focusing about telling us about the expansion of that kingdom through the body of Christ, the church. Historically, we've called the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, but really, this is the, this, this is the recording of the Acts of Jesus in and through his people. And it's important to keep that in mind to connect the gospel, uh, the gospels to the book of Acts and why it matters. The third thing to keep in mind here is that the book of Acts covers some really key moments in the unfolding of the kingdom of Christ and the birth of the church. When Jesus ascended into heaven, things weren't, they, they weren't everything they were going to be yet. We see as the book of Acts records, there's some things that get laid out in time and further defined that the church is going to have to wrestle through and that the Holy Spirit delivers them through. So Luke takes us from the resurrection of Jesus to his ascension and then to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he takes us on to Peter's proclamation of the gospel to the Jews at Pentecost, the testimony of Stephen, who was the first martyr, And then he tells us about the expansion of the message of the gospel to the Samaritans and then to the astonishing conversion of Saul of Tarsus. These are key moments in the early years of the church which Luke has recorded not just to give us an accurate understanding of our history as believers, but also to show us the reality of the rule and reign of King Jesus. That is what the book of Acts is all about, showing us that Christ reigns and pointing us to his continued work even now. So as we come to our passage today, we can think about this really as we're entering phase three of the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. Following the pattern of Jesus' great commission, we see that the gospel, having been proclaimed in Judea and then in Samaria, is now going to the ends of the world. And as a result, we see that the world would never be the same again. And this is start, kind of starts at this moment, so I'm excited to get into this with you. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 10, starting verse 1, and then reading through the first part of verse 23. This is the Word of the Lord. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is at, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or clean, or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, 
Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. This is a significant moment in the history of redemption. It does not always stand out to us for how significant it is. But it was so significant to Luke and to what was happening that God inspired him to spend actually the majority of two whole chapters unpacking it. In fact, this is the longest single narrative in the book of Acts. And it shows up here and later on in chapter 15 at the first church council. This is a radical change. In expanding the gospel to the nations, God did something which, looking back on the scriptures, he had clearly declared he would do, but which radically exceeded the expectation of many of the first believers. And praise God that he did that. Because Otherwise, you and I would not have the same hope that we do as believers if he had not chosen to save people from every tribe, nation, and language. We can tend to take our access to the gospel and to the salvation that we have in Christ for granted. We ought not to do that. We're reminded by Paul in the book of Romans that we, unless you're ethnically Jewish, which I don't know if any of you are, unless... But if it weren't for that, we are those wild olive branches that have been grafted in. This is amazing. This is not a passage to take for granted. And the main idea of what we're going to look at this morning is simply this. God has seen fit to glorify Jesus by making him the Savior of the world. God has seen fit to glorify Christ by making him the Savior of the world. Of the world. In this passage, we see God bringing glory to Christ in three ways. In Christ, first, we see God gives grace to the nations. He gives grace to the nations. Second, in Christ, God breaks down the walls that would otherwise divide us. He breaks down the walls that would otherwise divide us. And third, we see that in Christ, God, sh- God calls us to share in his heart for others. That's what we want to unpack this morning as we see how God has glorified Christ to be the Savior of every tribe, nation, tongue, people, and language. Let's begin this morning by looking at this global grace. Now Luke begins in chapter 10 by introducing us to a man named Cornelius. Cornelius, we're told, was a soldier. Specifically, he was a centurion who was stationed... on the coast of Palestine in a city called Caesarea. Now, this is not... There's a couple different Caesareas. This is not Caesarea Philippi, which shows up later in the book of Acts. We'll we'll get there. This is actually a port city which was located on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea about 30 miles north of Joppa, which is where we last left Peter staying with Simon the Tanner there by the ocean, by the sea. Now, Caesarea was an important town It had been rebuilt by Herod the Great, and it was named in tribute after Caesar Augustus. It was used by the Romans to be really their administrative center, and so it stood out as a distinctly Roman city, even having a temple that was dedicated to worshiping Caesar. Because of this, the city of Caesarea was really a stench in the nose of the Jewish people. Uh, we know from history that a number of Jews did live in the city itself, but for the most part, this was a place that was particularly dominated by Gentiles. As a centurion, 
Cornelius was a man of authority. He was not just a soldier. He was actually a commander of about a hundred men. Centurions were well paid. They made about five times what your average soldier made. And so Cornelius would have had a relatively high social standing living there. What's more, Luke tells us that Cornelius belonged to what was called the Italian cohort, which I take it to mean uh, that he was more than just an officer in the Roman army. He was actually from Italy itself. Typically, uh, the cohorts were organized by region, where you came from, uh, even though the Romans used different people groups to make up their legions. So if there were ever a man that we would expect to embody the principles of Rome, it would have been this guy. It would have been Cornelius. So it is immensely astonishing to read what Luke says about him in verse 2, that Cornelius was actually a devout man who feared God with all his household. Additionally, Luke tells us that Cornelius showed love to the Jewish people. He gave them alms, and he dedicated himself regularly, praying to God continually. This is not the kind of behavior you expect from a, from a Roman officer, let alone one who's from Italy itself. I don't know where Calvin got his information, but he makes a comment in his commentary that the Italian cohorts were known uh, for being especially uh, vicious and brutal. It was personal for them. They were about the glory of Rome. It wasn't just an employment. It was an opportunity to make a name for yourself. So it is particularly astonishing to me to hear not only that Cornelius behaved in this way, but that he was also uh, that he was dedicated to worshiping God. Clearly, God had worked in Cornelius's house. We don't know the route that he took in this, whether uh, he how he came to this. Just Luke just tells us he was a devout man. He was a God fearer. He worshipped the Lord and he cared for the Jewish people. So clearly. God had done something in his heart and in the hearts of his whole household since they were all seeking after the Lord even though they didn't go the whole way to become Jewish converts themselves. In verse 3, Luke tells us that while Cornelius was presumably praying at the ninth hour, which it would be about 3 p.m., that was, that's your typical time when, when Jews would pray their afternoon prayer, an angel appeared to him and spoke to him in a vision. Now, when Cornelius saw the angel, Luke tells us he was absolutely terrified. Now, keep, keep in mind, Cornelius is a man of war. He, he's a man who had faced death. And yet, when he came face to face with this angel, all he could do was to stare at him in terror and say, What is it, Lord? I'm sure that as a devout man who feared God, Cornelius would have heard about angels. But clearly, he wasn't really prepared to actually meet one. I don't think anyone ever is. Even the prophets in the Old Testament, when an angel appears to them, are floored. One glimpse at holiness in this man of courage and valor was brought to his knees. But the angel said something to him, of words of peace. He says, Cornelius... Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. Now when the angel left, Cornelius didn't hesitate, calling two of his servants and a devout soldier who attended him. Cornelius told them what had happened. Now, little interesting note about the wording here, uh, this devout soldier. We don't know if that means that he was a God-fearer too, or if that's just the way in which he served Cornelius as a devout soldier. One way or another, he was a man that Cornelius trusted. And so Cornelius was relating to them everything he had seen, and that he sends them on this mission to Joppa to go do what the angel had told them to do. Now, Cornelius got to experience something really special here. It's not every day that an angel appears and speaks to someone, especially like this. And I imagine that Cornelius was totally dumbfounded by the whole experience. Uh, can you imagine, as these men left, what he would have been thinking? or did, Could you even sleep after something like this? I don't know that I could. The excitement of, what is this man named Simon, who's staying with a tanner of all people, going to come tell me 
What, what has God appointed for him to say to me? And then even get to meditate on the fact that the prayers that I, he had offered and the alms that he had given had been recognized by the God, the creator of all things. That, that's something. That will keep you up at night. That will encourage you, but it will also floor you. You and I know that Cornelius was told to send for Peter, ultimately so Peter could come and share the gospel with him and his family. But Cornelius didn't have all that information here. I'm actually pretty impressed by the amount of faith he shows here, obeying God without question, even though he didn't know where this was going to lead. Now, given what the angel says to Cornelius, that his alms and prayers had ascended to God as a memorial, we might be tempted to think that God chose to send this angel to Cornelius because of his devotion, because of his good deeds. But while I, I think God, it's right to understand, God commended Cornelius for his faith, telling him he'd seen everything he had done, we should not understand in any way, shape, or form that Cornelius somehow earned this through his own efforts. No, the credit for this has to go to God and his grace toward Cornelius and his family. Let me ask you this. Who was it that inclined Cornelius' heart in the first place to seek after the Lord as he did? Was it not God? It's not his upbringing. It's not his station. It's not his job. It's not the city he lives in. It had to be the Lord. Who was it that orchestrated Peter to go and stay in Joppa and then told Cornelius to send to Peter there, give him his exact coordinates? Was it not the Lord? As we progress through the story of Cornelius and his family, who was it who opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel and worked in their hearts so that they believed it? Was it not the Lord? Friends, the Bible tells us that ever since the fall of Adam, the natural state of every man, woman, and child is war with God. Cornelius was no exception to that. Ephesians 2 says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Cornelius didn't earn this favor before God. It was given as, a, as an act of grace. The heart that he had to commit himself to the fear of the Lord had come from God. The heart that he had to be a blessing to the Jewish people was driven first and foremost by the heart which God had for him. This is important. Because if we see Cornelius, this could fuel a misunderstanding to make us think that our faith, that God will favor us more if we just do more. If we can do the right things, say the right words, God will have to do this. When everything we have is a gift of grace. God has always had a heart for the nations. He has always purposed to make his name great in all the earth. We can think about Jeremiah 3, in which God speaks of how he was going to rescue his people from the broken state of their sins. And in verse 17, he says, At that time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord and Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. It's happening right here. Or think about Psalm 22, 27, where the psalmist sings, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Or Psalm 67, verses 4 and 5. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That is God's heart for the nations. God showed amazing grace to Cornelius and his family. Not just by sending this angel, but more generally, by giving them hearts to fear him. In Cornelius, we see the sort of heart that God has for the nations and gathering people from every corner of the world to be his worshipers. In the angel's message, we see that God actually 
kept his word, which he spoke thousands of years prior to Abraham when he told him, I will bless you. This is speaking to Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Cornelius got to receive that blessing as a measure of God's grace. As we follow the storyline of Scripture, we learn that the blessing that God had spoken of had to do with the same promise he had given to Adam and Eve in the garden. The promise of a deliverer who would make things right. Who would bring salvation, not just to one people, but to all peoples. In John 10, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as a father knows me, and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep, this is speaking to the Jewish people, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The favor that Cornelius received from the Lord was the result of God's grace, not the result of his work. That's important. Because it's so easy to look at this passage and to think to ourselves, if I do these things, God will reward me. When we forget the reason that we have any desire to do any of those things in the first place is because of His work in us. The glory doesn't go to us. It goes to Christ. And so, even as we can rejoice in the faithfulness of Cornelius' life here and hope to be faithful like him, at the end of the day, we must worship the God of our salvation who calls us to him and gives us a heart to obey. So that's the first way we see God glorifying Christ in his heart for the nations. The second way we see God glorifying Christ here is in Christ, the way that Christ breaks down all barriers that stand between us and him. Now, even while Cornelius is described as a, as a man who feared God, as a devout man who gave and who dedicated himself to praying continually, there's this one big glaring barrier that stands out about him, which is the whole reason I think Luke spends so much time talking about this. And that's the fact that he's a Gentile. At this point, Cornelius is not a part of the covenant community of God's people. And while God clearly showed Cornelius mercy and grace, there's still this issue that has to be dealt with, this, this barrier, something which Christ came to break down so that Cornelius and his family, but then more personally, so that you and I can share in this fellowship and be made righteous as Jesus is. The angel of God who appeared to Cornelius told him to send men to Joppa to bring Simon Peter there. He didn't tell him why. He just told him to do it. Meanwhile, we see God was doing something, preparing Peter for this moment. Because this expansion of salvation to the Gentiles was really going to shake things up. In verse 9, Luke tells us that the next day, as Cornelius' men were approaching Joppa, Peter went up at the sixth hour to pray. That would be about noon. While he was praying, we're told he became hungry. And as they were preparing food for him, he fell into a trance. And he saw a vision. And we're told that in this vision, he saw the heavens opened up. Something like a great sheet came down, descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In this sheet, we're told there were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And a voice speaks to Peter out of heaven saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter was absolutely shocked. Was this a test? Well, and, and, and true to Peter's form, he just straight up says to God, By no means, Lord! No way! I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Why would I break your law? Uh, the law of Moses laid out strict guidelines for Israel about what they could and couldn't eat. There were animals that were off limits for, God, for God's people to eat. Pigs, snakes, bacon, which comes from pigs, fish, fish without scales, in particular birds of prey, and so on. The law prevented those animals from being eaten. It, it, it set the Israelites apart from the nations that were around them. 
that that's really why Peter, I think, is so astonished. This was not just a matter of what you get hungry for. This is a matter of personal and national identity. Never in his life had Peter eaten anything like what was on this sheet. And this voice from heaven, which is clearly the Lord, was commanding him to do just that. So he was taken aback. Not only that, this didn't just happen one time. Luke tells us that it repeated itself two more times. Each time when Peter reacted like this, the voice came to him again and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. Now to understand this, Pat, that is the key verse for understanding what's going on here. Why would God do this? Why would God present Peter with this vision? I mean, after all, I think in some part, Peter uh, is to be commended for sticking to the law and what the law expected of him. But as we look at this, we also have to ask ourselves, what on earth does it have to do with Cornelius and his men? Well, God's answer to Peter in verse 15 is that key that unlocks everything here. The law declared what was clean and acceptable and what was unclean and unacceptable. Each time when the sheet came down, Peter was told to kill and to eat. Each time he refused because the animals there were called were common and unclean, prohibited. In response, God tells Peter not to call unclean what he had made clean. The law didn't change. God had done something to what was previously unclean to make it clean. He had redeemed it. He had provided us with a redeemer who was able to take what is unclean and to make it clean again. Now, scholars and commentators go back and forth about whether this vision was really about food or whether it was about Gentiles. The fact of the matter is that the two are interrelated. The law which prevented Peter from eating these foods was also the law that prevented Cornelius as a Gentile from sharing in the fellowship of God. He declared both of them to be unclean, unfit. So we see that the point of this vision was to show Peter that God had done something to remove that barrier. Not not going around the law, but by fulfilling the law in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his holiness, is able to make us holy. Just as Jesus healed lepers, touching them, making them clean, so he is also able to touch and purify unclean sinners with their unclean hearts and make them clean as well. That is the point of the vision that Peter saw. Although I think it makes a good case for why we can eat bacon. God was preparing Peter, really. This is the heart of the issue. God was preparing Peter for the men who were headed his way. Showing them the true extent of the work of Christ. So that Peter would be ready and willing to go and share this good news of the gospel with Cornelius and his family. So that they too would get to share in the life and the light of Jesus Christ. He's preparing the way. God declared to Peter that what he had made what he had made clean, he had told him not to call it unclean. He was explaining, I think he was showing Peter in particular, that he had not reduced or changed the standard of holiness, but that he had imparted holiness to this in Christ. Again, I think we have to go, I've quoted Galatians 4.4 a lot over the past few weeks. We've got to go back there again. Because it tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God, we are told God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we are no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, we are heirs through God. The reason the gospel was so scandalous, the reason it remains scandalous, is is that it does not tell us how to earn our favor, how to earn favor and salvation from God. No, we can't do that. The angel appeared to Cornelius, who appeared to Cornelius, didn't come and say, Hey, Cornelius, God has taken notice of all your prayers. He's taken notice of all your gifts. 
And he sent me to tell you that if you want to be saved, you've got to submit yourself to the law. He didn't say that. No, the angel of the Lord pointed Cornelius to Peter and then told Peter, Hey, go tell this message of good news about Jesus to him. He pointed Peter. He told he, he, All this is being orchestrated to point us to Jesus who came to break down the barrier of our sin, who came under the law, fulfilling the law so that we might be free from it and be clean in God's sight. That's what's going on here. The gospel doesn't tell us that we are saved by doing certain things. It points us to Jesus who has done everything and that it calls us to repent and to believe, to receive the life that He came to bring us through faith, to be joined to Him and to be grafted to Him like a branch so that the life that He has in Himself becomes our life. We share in that, and then as a consequence, we then bear the fruit of His righteousness in our lives. That's the gospel. That's what God has done to make us clean. In Galatians 3.10, the Apostle Paul explains that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because nobody can keep it. We are all unclean, Jew and Gentile, man or woman, slave or free. There is no exception. That is why God's declaration to Peter is so monumental. God has made us clean in Christ. And so his soft rebuke to Peter as he's looking at these animals on the sheet is to say to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. My stamp of salvation is on them. As Ephesians 2 explains, therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross." That's the gospel. That's the good news. In Christ, Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see how Abraham's blessing takes shape and root in the work of Christ and how Cornelius got to share in that not because he earned it through his prayers not because he gave money to the Jewish synagogue not because he showed favor to a particular group but because God sought him and bought him and saved him that's why and so he has done in each and every one of you as well and you know what that does that brings exclusive glory to King Jesus. Because not one of us can look at our salvation and say, I did that. I was the X factor. I get to boast a little bit here. No, we fall on our faces before the throne. We cast that crown of righteousness at Jesus' feet and we say, it's all because of you. I have no plea before Jesus, before God, for righteousness except Him. And because He has called me clean, I am clean. That's what the work of Christ has done. And that is how God has glorified him as a savior of the world. Now this has an effect on us. And this is the third way we see God exalting Christ as the savior of the world. We see it in Christ's call to hospitality. Peter did not understand the vision of what he had seen. He saw it three times. This, this man who knew the scriptures, who knew God, was sitting on this housetop, perplexed, trying to figure out what on earth have I just seen? What is, what is this going to lead to? What is happening here? 
And that's when we're told in verse 17 that as he was inwardly perplexed, thinking about this, as he was considering these things, these things, this when these men who were sent by Cornelius, who apparently had to ask around town to even find this house, arrived there. They stood at the gate, and then they called out and asked if Peter was there. They didn't know who Peter was. All they had was the word of their commander, who had been, who had told them, told they had been told to send them by the angel. That's it. But faith was rewarded, and they found that the word of the angel proved to be true. I think that's something to marvel at, and in and of itself, I think. But then it gets better. Verse 19, Luke says, While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Now Luke doesn't describe these men for us. He doesn't say what they were wearing, if they came in common clothes or what. He also doesn't tell us whether or not these men were Jews or Gentiles. It's certainly possible the two servants that Cornelius had sent may have been Jewish. But I think it's very, very doubtful that the soldier in Cornelius' service, who was part of the Italian cohort, would have been Jewish. If he was wearing his uniform, which I think is very likely, Peter would have known that immediately. This guy is from outside my nation. So with his vision still burning in his mind and the instruction of the Spirit telling him to go down and to go with these men without delay, Peter obeys. He goes down from where he'd been praying on top of the house. He introduces himself, and then he asks them what they want. Now, I would have loved to see Peter's face as he heard these men tell him what had happened, how this angel had appeared to Cornelius and had instructed him to send them to Peter to come to his house and to bring him to Cornelius' house so that he could hear what he had to say. I think it had to be at that moment where the meaning of the vision finally just clicked over for Peter and he saw the significance of what was happening. He understood that God intended for him to go and to speak the gospel to Cornelius and his household. So then, Peter does something that is culturally unthinkable. He had these men come in and stay in the house with him. He showed them hospitality. He saw to it that they were refreshed and rested so that he could then go with them the next day to do what the Lord had commanded them to do. He brought them in, though they were strangers, to be his guests, which would mean that he saw to it that they were, they were taken care of and fed just as he has felt his own hunger. You know, Luke could have just told us that Peter went with them as the Lord called him to do. But he tells us specifically that Peter took these men in and treated them as guests. I think that's a really significant detail because it's the first step we see to the gospel coming to the Gentiles. Peter took a social risk by taking these men in. He was going to take an even bigger risk the next day by actually going with them to Caesarea. But that didn't matter to Peter in the end because he was beginning to better understand the true extent of what God had done in Christ. Do not call what God has made clean uncommon or common. Peter had God has taken what was unclean and unfit and he has made it by his grace fitting, clean and beautiful. God has broken down the barriers and the dividing wall that once stood between us and him. Not only that, he has also broken down the dividing wall that is between us and one another, thus fulfilling the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We see that full extent here in Christ. Peter began communicating the gospel through his actions. He received these men as his guests, even when he knew it would prove costly for him. But that's what Christ calls us to do. That's what he has done for us. The king has come to us, to the highways and the byways, in the squalor of our fallen world. He humbled himself and became us, came like us in every way, yet without sin. And then he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Because of the work of Christ, those who have trusted in him are no longer covered in the muck and the filth of sin. We have received salvation. We have received cleanness. We are clothed in robes that are not our own. We've been clothed in his righteousness. We've died to sin and we've been raised to new life with him. And if Christ shows such hospitality to us, we ought also to preach that same gospel by reflecting that hospitality and love to others. So maybe you're hoping to turn a new leaf in this next year. Whatever change you're hoping to see in your life, let's begin here with Christ and the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. Let's rejoice in the grace that he has poured out on us. Let's exalt in the way he has broken down that dividing wall that stood between us and him. And let's resolve to love others this year in the power of the Holy Spirit as he has loved us in ways that we've never loved before. Let's pray. Lord, it is obvious believing the conviction that your word is breathed out by you, that your spirit is the one who penned these words through the biblical authors, that it is authority for our lives, that it is your own self-revelation. Father, we want to come to you and ask that you would apply this to our lives and help us to live by it. We have no other hope, Lord, but that you do this. The same grace that you poured out on Cornelius and his household to make him desire you, even as there was this barrier, you have poured that same thing on us. And we pray that you would allow us to follow after you, that you would continue day in and day out to refine our understanding of you, to grow us in our love for you, to enliven our will, to act in response. And that as such, Father, we pray that King Jesus would get all the glory. We pray that in this new year, that this church will be known supremely for our love for you and our love for our neighbor. And we pray, Father, that as we do so, that the message of the gospel will be spoken clearly and effectively, and that in this year, many more people in our community and across the states and in the world would know Jesus as their Savior. We pray, Father, that you would do this, knowing that it is your will and your pleasure to exalt the Son in this way. And we ask that you would accomplish that in and through us, even now. And we pray this in his holy name, for his glory. Amen. Well, in response, we want to sing our fourth song this morning, which is All Glory Be to Christ.